Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. As our kids are leaving, I just want to say that I feel very hopeful for what the Lord is going to do and is doing in our next gen. And if you, uh, if you feel prompted around that relational pastoral role that Dave just mentioned, I really hope you'll join our team. There's some really great stuff happening uh, at Trinity these days, and I'm, I'm just super, super excited about what the Lord's doing. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, if you um, have worried about me over the last number of weeks because you haven't seen my face in this pulpit. I'm still here feeling great about life. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward today and uh, looking forward to talking to you about this skeleton. It's not real. It's made of metal. Uh, and so don't worry. Uh, no one has been uh, decapitated in order for us to have an object lesson in our, in our sermon today. I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read about the temptation of Jesus and then we're going to pray, and then we're just going to jump in and see if we can engage this season of Lent together and uh, walk through what Jesus experienced and see how uh, his experiences uh, inform and can shape our own understanding of what temptation looks like for us. So let's, let's read first. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, here the devil is quoting the Bible, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the Bible, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to think about things that maybe we're uncomfortable or unaccustomed to thinking about, namely uh, the Satan and evil and temptation. We pray that you would give us grace to, to slow down and be present we pray, God, that you would give us insight into what it is you would have to say to us today through the word as we consider it together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So on Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, we gathered here uh, three different times through the day, and we marked folks, young and old, with an ashen cross on their foreheads, and we said to them, from dust you came and to dust you will return. I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, one that observed the season of Lent. I, I really didn't know what it was. And so this is one of the things that I think I have come to appreciate m most about being an Anglican is that we get invited into the rhythm of these seasons through the church year. And the season of Lent is a period of wilderness wandering where we symbolically follow Jesus into the wilderness that I just read about to prepare us for Easter. And I think that increasingly Lent is really important for us in uh, the West because we tend to live surrounded by so much excess, so much plenty that 
it takes a conscious action. Uh, uh, it requires, I think, a conscious choice in order for us to step out of some of that excess and that plenty in order to clarify our hearts. Lent is not just a time for self-improvement. It's actually primarily not about that at all. Lent is a time for us to focus on our mortality. It's a really strange thing to make an ashen cross on the forehead of a small child and say to her, from dust you came into dust you will return. But I think we need to hear that. We're made of fragile, finite stuff. The sturdiest among us, we're made of fragile material. And this is an opportunity for us to tend to that sin and that fragility, to ask Jesus to meet us there. Uh, my wife bought me this skull for Christmas. And before you go judging her for giving such a weird Christmas present, I, I asked for it. I, um, I think when I asked for it, I had in mind a real skull, found out that's not appropriate. You can't get those, I don't think. Um, you certainly shouldn't help find one by separating someone's skull from the rest of their body. So I got this one, uh, came from Scott's Antique Market. Uh, the guy probably lied to, to her and told her it was super, super, super old, but maybe, maybe it was. I put this in my office because every day I, I turn to it and I contemplate my own mortality. I, I'm, I'm learning in this season of my life to actually remind myself that um, I am and you are, that we are made of, of fragile and finite stuff, that we're not going to live forever. A Lent is a time to remember our, our death. It's a time for us to remember our sin. It's a time for us to enter into the wilderness. What we just read about Jesus going into the wilderness is also an invitation for you and for me to follow him there on purpose, to enter into dark and uncertain spaces, trusting that Jesus has gone there first. In 46 days-ish, uh, we will celebrate Easter. And if you know the story, um, Easter is all about life. But I think if we don't focus on death, sin, mortality, then focusing on life becomes somewhat excessive. I think if you're always feasting and never fasting, there's a, a tinge of gluttony to that. And we're a people, I think, who tend toward gluttony, uh, gluttony of all kinds, intemperance of all kinds. And so I would invite you to follow us into the season, to enter into the wilderness, to uh, focus on repentance and prayer, to maybe eat a little less or give something up, not just to improve yourself, but to recognize how dependent you are upon your own appetites. Lent is an opportunity for us to see just how dependent we are on things other than God, and then begin to ask God for his help there. Okay, three things. First, uh, Satan. Uh, the Satan is the uh, elephant in the room when you read a text like this, because uh, many of us, we hear this and we think, well, surely we don't believe in that. Uh, we're educated and sophisticated people. So how can an educated and sophisticated person believe in the devil? And the reason for that is that almost all of us, uh, when we read a text like this and we think about the Satan, what comes to our mind is like a little elf in red tights with horns and a pitchfork. And we think, well, I can't believe in that. It's like cartoonish. And yet I, I think it's really important for us, if we're going to consider temptation, if we're going to consider the invitation to follow Jesus, it's really important for us to stop and consider for a moment whether or not we can make room in our worldview for um, not just evil in terms of political or evil in terms of absence of good, but evil in terms of creative personified evil. 
Now, I think that we run the risk sometimes when we begin to consider Satan or the devil. Uh, on one hand, we can mute him uh, and not believe in him enough. And then on the other hand, we can become fixated and fascinated. And as my grandmother said, used to say, look for demons under lampshades, you know, just blame everything on the devil. Um, let's try to avoid the two extremes, ignorance and fixation. And let's try to have a reasoned and what I would argue is a logical appreciation for the fact that we have an adversary. Uh, one of the core tenets of Christianity is the belief that we have an advocate, that the Holy Spirit is our advocate, that uh, Jesus, the resurrected uh, Savior, is an advocate who is praying for us and uh, an ally, a person who is making a way for us. And I think that we also have to make room for the fact that if we have advocacy, we also have an experience, adversity, that we have an adversary. And I think that for many of us, any kind of worldview that doesn't make room for evil, as I'm about to define it, I think has something to answer for. You know, as we think about the death camps at Auschwitz and Dachau, as we think about the genocide in Rwanda where a million people were killed not by sophisticated machinery but but with rudimentary machinery hand to hand if we think about sex trafficking and abuse and violence uh, I think that actually I would submit to you that what Christians have always believed is the best explanation for those things those things are not just simply good intentions gone bad I believe it is as if a bishop in Rwanda um, famously said when he watched the streets of Kigali run red with blood, he said it was as if the devil of hell himself were wandering our streets during that summer of 1994. Let's look at this quote. This is from Alexander Schmiemann, who is an Orthodox theologian, uh, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, period, certainly one of the best most insightful Christian thinkers in the last couple of hundred years. He said, some theologians and philosophers in an attempt to explain and thus rationalize the experience and existence of evil explained it as an absence, the absence of good. They compared it, for example, to darkness, which is nothing but the absence of light and which is dispelled when light appears. This theory was subsequently adopted by deists and humanists of all shades and still constitutes an integral part of our modern worldview. And I would say that it does actually, this is, this is what the world tells us about what we would call evil. But he says this, such is not the understanding of evil in the Bible and in the experience of the church. Here, evil is most emphatically not a mere absence. It is precisely a presence. The presence of something dark, irrational, and very real. Although the origin of that presence may not be clear and immediately understandable, thus, and hear him on this, this is so important, thus, hatred is not a simple absence of love. It is the presence of a dark power which can indeed be extremely active, clever, and even creative. And it is certainly not the result of ignorance. Hear this, we may know and hate. I like how he says that evil is most emphatically not a mere absence. It is precisely a presence. John 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And then Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. There are signs of the enemy's activity. 
And I believe that the Lord would make you aware, make us aware. And at the very least, what I want to do is crack the door for you. That if you have not made room for the reality of evil, for, for temptation, not just being something gone a bit wrong, but potentially an adversary wanting to derail you as the adversary desired to derail Jesus, my hope is that at the very least, the door would be cracked and you would make room for the possibility of such a thing, such a one, namely that you would make space in your mind for the reality of the Satan. So now let's look at temptation. If there is a Satan, then there is the reality that temptation is a real thing. Temptation, as it relates to Jesus in this text, uh, occurs on three levels. There are three layers. I I would submit to you that these layers are um, sequential and descending in order of uh, strategy and tactic, uh, which means that desire is sort of the first battleground of the soul. And then uh, boundaries are the second battleground of the soul. And then thirdly, shortcuts to existential purpose are the third battleground of the soul. I would furthermore submit to you that because we're so vulnerable in the arena of desire, we oftentimes never experience true temptation in the second or the third arena. It's as if the enemy says, if I can get you with your appetites, I don't really need to go to more sophisticated levels. A lot of us have never truly hit existential temptation because we fall flat on our face in the arena of desire and boundary. So we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to recognize something about Jesus, and then we're going to look at ourselves and how Jesus' temptation gives us an understanding of strategy. And this is where Shmimon is right on the money because he says strategy implies creative energy. He uses the word clever If your enemy, your adversary is clever, then then the enemy has a strategy. I believe we're about to discern some of that strategy. But it's also really important to understand that while we can learn from Jesus, Jesus' temptation is unique and that ours is derivative and follows the strategic pattern. So let's look at Stanley Hauerwas. He's a a Bible scholar. He has uh, possibly the the most annoying spoken voice that you'll ever hear. I would encourage you just to Google him. He speaks like his nose is being pinched, and I I feel confident that he's not going to listen to this sermon. Uh, But I think he knows that his voice sounds a bit nasally. Um, So I'm not going to nasal it, but I am going to give you his, his brilliance. He says, it's significant to recognize. I shouldn't have done that. That was sin. That was wrong. I I apologize. Um, It is Lent after all. So I ask for your forgiveness. He says, it is significant to recognize that the devil's only viable mode of operation is to tempt. The devil can only be a parasite. Think, I want you to think about this. It's really important. The devil can only be a parasite, which means that the devil is only as strong as the one he tempts. This is not to suggest, however, that the temptation of the devil is any less destructive for us. But it does mean that the temptation of Jesus endures, that he endures is unlike the temptation we endure. For the devil knows that this is the very son of God. Jesus is tempted in a way that is unique because he is the son of God. He is the one with medicine to cure us. That being said, we can learn from Jesus's own temptation to spot strategic temptation in our own life. So first, our desire. Jesus is hungry, the Bible tells us. He's been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil, the Satan, comes to him and says, turn that stone into food and just eat like you're hungry. 
And it's very important for you to recognize Jesus doesn't say, I'm not hungry. I'm fine. Jesus does not ignore his desire. It is a legitimate desire to be hungry after not eating for a long period of time. And by the way, you can go 40 days without eating food and live. Um, I know people who've done it. I have friends who have done 40-day fasts. I have not done a 40-day fast, but it's quite possible. And the reality is after a 40-day fast, it is totally understandable for Jesus to be hungry. So it's very important to recognize that temptation in the arena of desire, that the way to fight that is not to ignore or deny desire— because your desires are legitimate. Like you're craving for sustenance and satiation, to be satisfied, to be loved. You're, you're craving to not be alone. Uh, our craving for comfort. These things are not bad. And the answer is not to kill desire, y'all. Jesus does not kill desire. He doesn't pretend as if he's not hungry. He just says, I'm going to defer meeting that need in that way while honoring the desire and saying, God's going to do something that's going to help me meet this in a more realistic, sustained, and transcendent way. And so when we're tempted in the arena of our desire, your first answer cannot be to stuff desire down. You've got to recognize that desire is meant to be a motivator, a mover. It's meant to speak to us about God. And that it is the nature of the soul to need. John Ortberg says this in his book, Soul Keeping. He says, it's the nature of the soul to need. Your desire, the things you crave, the things you need, success, significance, comfort, companionship, release, comfort from just not having to be overwhelmed by whatever hard thing it is that's coming to you. These things are not bad things. And yet... Most of the stuff we do that leads us down roads that are not redemptive are a kind of finite, broken response to desire. I would submit to you that under your sinful behavior, as it relates to desire, is oftentimes a legitimate need that needs to be expressed and that God wants to do something to begin to bring satisfaction, safety, and comfort. But we go this way. And then we end up down dead end and dark roads. And I don't have to know your story because I know my story. My desire has often led me to say things, do things, go down roads, engage in stuff. Gosh, we eat too much. We drink too much. We lose ourselves in entertainment. We try to make more money and lose our, our priorities in the process of trying to figure out who we are, what we are. All these things are just a, a fallen response to desire. And many of us, this is your battleground, and it's one that you've never been able to see a way through. Jesus looked at temptation as it related to desire, and he said, God, you've got a different kind of thing, a different kind of food that will satisfy the deepest longing in me. And he refused to cut it short. And then the enemy takes him to the top of the temple, and the enemy says, um, uh, at the pinnacle of the temple, just, just jump. And then the, the devil quotes the Bible, which is alarming. Uh, hey, angels, they'll catch you. And, and I want to frame this temptation in terms of boundary. Uh, the scripture teaches us that the boundary lines for us have fallen in pleasant places. And here Jesus is tempted to push through a boundary. He's just tempted to like, go for it. 
And the devil says, if God really cares about you, he'll catch you. I would reframe maybe the boundary thing if it would be helpful in terms of intemperance. So when you think of cardinal virtue, uh, going back to like Aristotle and Greek uh, philosophy, that cardinal virtue, the one regarding temperance meant to know where the line was and not go over it. Which is a really sad framing because we hear of the temperance movement just meant abstinence, right, from alcohol. So that temperance was, was, has actually been reframed in ways that aren't helpful. Temperance means to know where your boundaries are. It means to know where the line is. That up to a certain point, there's life. And then beyond it, it's reckless. Jesus is tempted to, to go for it. He's tempted to be reckless with the promise that God would figure it out. I remember years ago having a conversation with a young man in our church who was actively planning to commit adultery. He, um, he had been married a couple of years. Uh, he was not happy in his marriage. And there was this woman at work that was uh, interested in him. She was attractive. She was smart. She uh, didn't have any domestic responsibilities with him. So it was like super easy and fun. And he thought, I'm going to, he said, he told me, it was a fascinating conversation. He said two things. He said, I'm going to have an affair with her. And I was like, well, all right, we're like getting into some real space here. And then he said one of the most shocking things ever. He said, I've talked to my mom about it. And she says, I'll ultimately be okay. There's so much going on in that, that like we could just, it's like, bro, you talk to your mom about what? We are tempted to push through. And you may not be contemplating adultery and checking in with your mom about it, but electricity has allowed us to be intemperate. And I am so thankful for electricity, but do you know what we have the opportunity to do that our ancient friends didn't? We get to work into the night. It gets dark outside and the vast majority of the human story, you, you got up when it got bright and you went to bed when it got dark and we get to just turn the lights on and keep going. We get to be as intemperate as we want to be. Intemperance is one of the great sins of my life. It's one of the great uh, temptations of my life. I come from a long line of if this is good, then that would be even better. Go for it. It's intemperance. Jesus was tempted to ignore the boundaries. Where are the boundaries? Where have the boundary lines fallen for you? Pushing through those boundaries causes tremendous hurt, deep pain. And some of us are experiencing those hurts right now. You've pushed through a boundary and now you're thinking, I don't know how to reel it back in. And then finally, the devil, the Satan, takes Jesus to a, a, a mythological height, a height that would show the whole scope of all of the kingdoms of the world. And the Satan says to Jesus, if you just get down on your knees here with me, then you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to deal with obedience. You don't have to walk the road of darkness and suffering. You don't have to do it. We'll just do a deal here and you'll have all that stuff. And I would argue that this temptation was the most fundamental and profound temptation that Jesus ever faced. Because if you go back, right, you fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Like, God, let this cup pass for me. If there's any way for me to not have to go there, this was a fundamental temptation for Jesus. You can have power without 
character. You can have purpose without paying your dues. You can have shalom without obedience. This is an existential temptation. And we're all in one way or another tempted toward shortcuts. We're tempted toward trying to find purpose without being people of character. And it's a fundamental temptation. And Jesus knows it. He was there too. But shortcuts un undermine our substance. They make us more shadowy, but less substantial. And one of the things that occurs to me as I think about my own life as it relates to temptation is that these temptations, when I succumb to them around desire, around boundary, around existential shortcuts, that they give us a shadowy feeling or sense of the good life, but it's not a substantial sense of the good life. We sort of get like a ghostly version of it that will evaporate at one point or another. And Jesus offers us something deeper. But we have to be aware of where we're experiencing temptation. And the final thing Jesus experiences is comfort. He, he, he vanquishes the Satan and he receives comfort. We're told very simply, angels come and minister to him. That, that God's company surrounds him. And as you learn and I learn to see temptation for what it is, I believe that we will also learn to identify the comfort, the, the company of God around us that says, um, I can meet your need in a way that those things will not, will not satisfy. So here's what I want to ask you. Where is your current battleground? Let's put, let's put this question up for contemplation. As we consider Jesus, desire, boundary, and existential shortcut, where do you specifically need help? Where are you being tempted? And some of us in the silence as we move toward communion are going are to admit sin in this area. We're going to say, I, I'm not only tempted, I've, I've fallen into sin in these areas. My prayer is that you would be kind with yourself as Jesus is kind toward you as you name your sin. Sin should not push us further into shame. It should actually bring us into communion. Where are you tempted and where have you sinned? Let's spend a few moments in silence holding this question. Maybe this is a question you could hold as you move further and further into the Lenten season. And then after a few moments of silence, we will come and we'll move toward the communion table. But first, let's just be still asking some really, really important questions about where we are.